0: The Gospel lesson for today is Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your Father and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said you do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him at an opportune time. What is a test? Why would we imagine that God would allow the devil, who, you know, it's no news to anyone here, is no peach of a guy, to engage in the sustained test of Jesus. And uh, why test Jesus if we already know that he's passed the test? One of the points I made last week regarding Jesus' baptism was that it was an example of what we've taken to calling a divine redo. So the reason why uh, Jesus was baptized um, can't be because of cleansing him from sin, because Jesus is sinless and Uh, He wasn't dunked or sprinkled or whatever he was in the Jordan to make him more clean or more righteous. And the point is that when you think about both Jesus's identity and the baptism, Jesus is the new and the perfect Israel, who is both God and fully human, who is being led and leading us into the waters of baptism to create a new nation. That's what's going on in the baptism more than any specific kind of, I don't know, Uh, 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 compliance with a a law, demand, or any other spiritual imperative. Jesus is being baptized on our behalf and is redoing uh, Israel. He didn't need to be made clean. He's the cleaner. He didn't need to be made a member of a church body by some authority. He's both the body and the authority. Uh, You know, he didn't need the water. He's the living water. And he promises us that uh, if we drink from him, we'll never thirst again. That was the whole point of this shtick about the baptism is that it's not for him, it's for us. And that he's, you know, doing Israel over again. And he's doing Israel over again because I feel like oftentimes God is pointing us towards stories in salvation history that remind us of God's commitment to us. Of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, of Joshua crossing the waters. And he's doing it not just because we are potentially forgetful. Uh, but he's doing it to demonstrate to us that he is creating a new kingdom for each one of us, and that Jesus is, in fact, making baptism possible so that we can become his children, members of his kingdom, citizens, with full legal moral standing. It, it, it's about the telling of the story, and we talk a lot about the power of, of living the story out around here. We talk a lot about God engaging us and talking to us in stories. We talk about the great stories that have formed the tapestry of the faith, and and how how it is that God is not just reminding us, but God is inviting us to live out and live through this this uh, the story to give us a hope, to give us a direction, to give us something that sustains us in the context of. Uh, having things feel like they're falling apart or that the waters are overtaking us. And as so many of us uh, struggle with all kinds of different things, the story that God is telling us is that I have liberated my people before I will liberate them again, and that I am with you in the water leading you through it. I like to call it, and I know a lot of us need them for different reasons, God's Exodus-related reminders. That's why I think the Spirit inspired John the Baptist and Luke in our text from last week, to say God could raise a nation out of the stones on the banks of the Jordan. He's reminding us that as the nation of Israel reentered its rightful home, that God was able to take it uh, when every man who had uh, seen the original promise wandering in the desert had died and and remake it to to create Israel and uh, to make it new again. John's point in saying that at the baptism as Jesus exits out into the wilderness is that God has already made a new Israel on the banks of the Jordan at least once. And in it, Jesus, he's doing it again. What's happening is Jesus leaves the baptism into the exile of the desert to be tempted is that he is giving, God is giving us an Exodus-related reminder of when Joshua led the children of Israel back into the Holy Land from the desert. Because first and foremost, what God is, is God is a liberator. Even even the story of Joshua coming back into the Promised Land, which is uh, a story that is parallel to Jesus exiting the waters of baptism and uh, moving into uh, the, the desert to be tempted, is in fact a reminder that God had even liberated, Egypt, uh, liberated uh, Israel from Egypt, not just from Pharaoh, but from the desert, from sin and death, that Jesus is once again liberating us from everything that might constrain, hold us back, or prevent us from achieving the purpose that he intends for us. And that's a long-winded way of saying... That we can't understand what's going on in the temptation without seeing it as an extension of the baptism, without seeing Jesus's emergence from the Jordan as exactly parallel to Israel's emergence from the Jordan as Joshua is asked to put those stones back up. That's the same story, and God is basically hitting us over the head with it in a way that's not entirely subtle. The connections here are overwhelmingly powerful that when we see and think about what Jesus is doing in the temptation, we're supposed to see and think about what Israel is doing as it wanders in the desert. How many days is Jesus in the desert? 40. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. This is not exactly subtle. Think about the parallel elements in the story. After a miraculous supernatural water crossing, uh, Jesus, the new Israel, like the old Israel, wanders in the desert for 40 units of time to take a test. It's not days or years isn't the point here as much as it is that this is a connection that God really wants us to get if you measure it by the number of literary devices that are piled on to make it clear and here's the thing here's what to me is interesting just like the paradox of baptizing the cleaner why is jesus going through the exodus and the exile again because to be tested because we know exactly like in the baptism that jesus is going to pass the test in fact god has already done an ultimate spoiler alert when god who sees all time and is all knowing looks at jesus as he's in that water and what does he say not only this is my son but what i am well pleased in him so here is Jesus not only redoing the crossing of the river that we see in the Exodus in Joshua, but here is Jesus redoing Israel's wandering through the wilderness. And I like to think about it. I think about, you know, what is God trying to tell us through this story? What, what if we think about the details of that story? So I like to imagine myself, let's say, in the old, old Israel, crossing uh, the Red Sea out of Egypt. I like to think of myself, as, you know, like well, all of us, we were, we were slaves all day long, and we had to drag stones and get whipped to make a temple by a violent, glory-hungry tyrant who had thrown our infant sons into the Nile. And like, as the kids say these days, we pretty much wanted to peace out of Egypt. And so God releases plagues, and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, Pharaoh lets us go, and there's uh, uh, th- this escape through a miraculously uncovered seabed, and if I know you, which I do pretty well, but I know myself, if I know myself, I'd, I'd, I, I can imagine that as my feet are hitting that soggy ground of that newly cleared seabed, and as I think about uh, Pharaoh on our tail, I imagine myself, as I've done so many times before, praying, God, if you get us through this one, if you get us through this one, we'll totally straighten up and fly right on the other side. We'll be the best Israel ever. Super promise. And you turn around, and to your amazement, the waters crashing on Pharaoh. And so it's time to straighten up and fly right after all you promised God in that miraculous crossing, but you don't. Despite the manna and the commandments, and no matter how hard Charlton Heston tried, you'd be wandering in the wilderness, and you'd stray again for 40 years. After 40 years of God sustaining your nation in the desert, which itself is a miracle without irrigation or roads or Hamptons Inn, God, Inns. God gets you through it. And if you were one of the lucky ones, we know if there were any of these people, they'd have to be women because the men died, we're told, in Joshua. If you were one of the lucky ones who was there for the first crossing of the water at the Red Sea and you finally showed up at the banks of the Jordan to cross the Holy Land, remember what happens last week. Everything is flooded, so you pray. You pray and, you know... Uh, this time, you really have to lay it on good because the first time the God water opened the waters for you, you totally messed up and you wandered around in the desert forever. So you pray, God, you know what? I've grown old wandering around in this desert and I'm tired and our nation is at the end of its rope. And if you just let us through this one time, clear back this water, we'll straighten up and fly right and we'll do morning devotionals and we'll listen to K Love nonstop and we'll volunteer at church. Double super promise, next stop, clean living. But it isn't. And you don't. And you wander off again. And maybe this time you as Israel are not in the literal desert, but spiritually and morally and intellectually you're in a desert. And all you've done is essentially traded Caesar for Pharaoh. And in baptism, in the story of baptism and exile into the wilderness today, Israel finds itself back at the water again. And the new Israel has crossed it. Jesus has crossed it. And he's on his way out in the wilderness. And he is going to go through the exact same sets of temptations that the old Israel went through, except this time he's going to pass them. And except this time, not only is he going to pass him, but this time he is going to invite not just one nation, but all of the nations of the world to the new, new Israel. See, I preached the temptation from Luke at least twice at Resurrection Church, and there are all kinds of great details we've talked about before, like the devil tempts Jesus with false sovereignty, and he's offering Jesus kind of premature domain over the political and material world. And of course, the devil is offering Jesus a totally stupid deal, Because Jesus knows that he's going to get the nations of the world anyway. And, you know, Jesus cites scripture and defers to the will of the Father, all that good stuff. But if you focus on the idea that as he is going into the exile, he's getting ready to repeat the experience of Israel. If you focus on the idea that the new Israel coming out of the Jordan is exactly like the old Israel crossing the Jordan for the first time and the old, old Israel crossing the Red Sea, and you see this is kind of a holy redo of exile. Well, to quote our good friend Jeffrey Lebowski, new stuff comes to light. Jesus goes to the desert to have his fidelity tested. And this should be the big tip-off. We already know that he is going to pass exactly like we already know that he didn't need the baptism. The point of the testing in the desert is not like, fingers crossed, let's see if Jesus makes it. The point of Jesus in the exile, the point of Jesus in the temptation is that unlike the old Israel, he is going to stick to the story that God gave him. And Jesus is going to pass the test for us. There's a lot of talk about testing in this story and the stories it refers to. And the Greek word for test is not like really like passing or failing like we think about it. The word is perosmos. And it is usually connected to like test or tempt. And that's why so many people translate this as temptation. But a beautiful connection is that this word perosmos comes from another word, perosmo. And you know what it means? To get through. To get through. And you know what that comes from? A word para, which means... To get to the other side. Testing here means Jesus is going to carry us to the other side. We're used to seeing tests as an opportunity to fail. That's what school taught us, that even when we got the answers right, we were being judged, and the point of it it was that we didn't fail. Testing here is not like a school test or a standardized test or a medical test that you might fail. Testing here is proofing and refining, and more importantly, it is God preparing us to get to the other side of that river. God is not a vindictive schoolmarm or a sadistic, burned-out college professor. Parasmo is the action of a loving God who enters the water for us, and who on our behalf helps us make it to the other side so when you hear test you have to think about it more than the challenge that we might fail you have to think about it as testing as proofing as refining as an opportunity for metanoia as a change in your mind and your heart defined by god taking on his own story, the story of the father, and living it out as if it was his own and us living it out as if it was our own. And the point of crossing the river is not that you will drown, The point of crossing the river is that God has already promised to carry you to the other side. And the choice is not about your ability to swim. It's about your ability to trust that he will see your way through and that he will open the waters and carry you to the other side. So when you think that the waters are deep and you think that they may overtake you, you don't know what he's holding back. And he's in the water with you and he has promised to get you to the other side. Talk about the tapestry of our faith and an Exodus-related reminder. If you look at the basic temptations that Jesus has laid out for him by the devil, he is redoing every single thing that Israel faced, and he is redoing it and passing it by simply citing the story that God has given to him. Take hunger. It's not just about the fact that not eating makes you hangry. Satan's not offering Jesus bread just because Jesus might be a little upset by not having consumed calories in a while. It's not intrinsically wrong to want leftovers or to eat when you're in the desert. This is not about God uh, enforcing a rule for the arbitrary sake of a rule sake. This is about a redo of Exodus 16, that when Israel was in the desert for actually only 45 days, from their miraculous escape out of the Red Sea. And what do we learn? We learn that the people were grumbling. And they actually said, if we'd only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, because in Egypt, we sat around and ate pots of meat. And in Egypt, we had all the food we wanted. And in Egypt, we didn't have to wander through this uh, desert to starve to death. These are people who are literally six weeks away from having that miraculous opening of the water and seeing the entire army of Pharaoh be destroyed. And you know what God's gonna do? God is basically going to, you know, flood their camp with, uh, uh, with manna that tastes like honey-dipped wafers. And he's going to have it overrun with juicy quail. So remember what God does. God offers Israel this test. The people of Israel complain after the Exodus. In Exodus sixteen four, God says, The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down uh, bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. I mean, it isn't the first time in the scripture that people have been enjoined not to eat something as a test, but God basically rains magic bread that tasted like honey from the sky and stocked the camp Full of game, game, and the only condition was that his people trust his provision, and that his people not fail to see his hand and his face in, in the context of overwhelming evidence to uh, of his supervision and his support and despite all that, the people of Israel not only complain about being let out of Egypt but they complain about God putting the condition on them, and they start to gather up extra bread. that was the old old and the old Israel. The new Israel, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. If you are the son of God, it should not go without notice for us that we're only a few verses from God saying what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But the devil is tempting Jesus not only to doubt, but to put his trust in his own power, his own competency and the provision of, uh, of his own efforts instead of trusting God. So unlike the old, old Israel and the old Israel, what does Jesus do as he wanders in the desert? He simply looks at the devil and says, one does not live by bread alone. The same is true of the devil's offers of ruling the nations in exchange for worship and of his offer to have Jesus throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. One is an offer, offer to be made a sovereign before the appointed time, avoiding the path that God has laid out. And the other offer, that, that one is interesting. As I talked about last time, we discussed this story. Some scholars argue that being thrown off the temple was a way of executing blasphemers. And there's another reference to it in Luke about a blasphemer being thrown off a cliff. I think the devil is trying to troll Jesus here. Jesus knows that his road lies through the cross. He knew that he would be executed by the governing religious authorities for claiming that he would be the king of the, it was the king of the Jews. And look, J.C., says the devil, why not take the bull by the horns? Get the whole thing over with. Jump up on the pinnacle, throw yourself off the temple, have the angel save you, and call it a day. Better than the whole alternative being crucified, actually dying, and having to wait three days for God to raise you again. What do you say? That's the point, isn't it? In each of these three tests where Israel failed, Jesus passes because he is willing in every instance to follow, to stick to, and to live out God's story. He is willing to do it, and not only is he willing to do it, he takes joy in doing it, whether he was hungry, whether it requires him to spend time and wait to get the thing that he would like to bring about, and even whether or not it requires his actual death on a cross. He's willing to follow that story to the very end because he knows that in doing so, he is taking the burden of death, of sin, of destruction, of crossing the waters, all on himself on our behalf, so that we can be united or we can be invited. Into a new and beautiful kingdom. Perizamos. He has passed the test for us. Even if it requires him to take on the ultimate sacrifice. Our new, our perfect Israel. Who has offered us adoption and citizenship in the kingdom of God. Who extends to us membership as one body in him and with him and through him. He has already carried us to the other side. He is our exodus and our return from exile. And in return, he asks us to live and love God and one another as if we were already on the other side. Amen. <clears throat> Choked me up a little bit. Questions, comment, talk? Dan.
1: There is an identity question here. Do, um, how do the people think of themselves in terms of, and I'll make the example, I, I'm a Muslim, I'm an American, I'm new to North Carolina, so most people would <coughs> be offended if I call myself North Carolina, but it is where I live. You know, when Jesus was doing these things, who did people say he was? Yeah. Kind
0: of thing. And did they recognize this when he was doing those things? That's the... Uh, that's why I, I kind of... It changed my view a little bit on the pinnacle challenge as the third temptation because I think... I think that that is the most direct... And why I say the devil's trolling him. I think that that is the most direct... Realization of what the inevitable outcome of Jesus's ministry is, but the devil's telling an inside joke, and the inside joke is, it's pretty well known that you know you're going to eventually be called a blasphemer, that you're going to eventually have to f- suffer punishment by the religious authorities, and so let's just get the whole thing over with, short circuit it, jump off the pinnacle, have the angels save you, solve the problem, and so yeah, it's exactly one of these instances where, and in all these questions, Jesus's identity with the Father is put in play and Jesus' identity as Israel is put in play. And each of the temptations are either that Jesus aligns with or inappropriately claims the power of the Father or inappropriately claims a vision of Israel that is not inclusive of the entire world and inviting everybody, yada, yada. Yeah, but that, the, the
1: church very frequently claims that the, the devil didn't see Christ dying on the cross. That it was the great surprise when he actually died. And, and, and yet at the same time, they also picture the devil in the garden of Gethsemane tempting Jesus not to go
0: to the cross. No. I, I've never been able to figure out what the devil knew and what he did. I, I mean, the devil's pretty smart here, at least that he's. That temptation doesn't make sense if it's not a little bit of an inside joke about what is likely to inevitably happen to Jesus. I think. Although I'm re- that's I'm relatively that's relatively new interpretation to me, but I think that's right. Anybody else? All right. to the people. Yes, sir. For sure. What else? Alright. Anything else? <coughs> Alright, let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, today. I thank you for every person that you've called here. Uh, I thank you for your... Uh, presence, your kindness, your provision, um, all the things that you offer to us. Uh, we lift up uh, the prayers that uh, we lift up for resurrection to be a reflection of who it is that you and what it is that you intend it to be, that we uh, make our hearts and minds focused around and oriented towards the things that you want us to achieve. Lord, we also lift up um, folks who are dealing with all kinds of medical circumstances, we lift up Gene and just ask that, uh, you know, that uh, the doctors have wisdom, especially the ones who are helping to manage his um, level of discomfort also uh, do so uh, well and that he is able to um, feel, you know, better and we pray for his healing. But of course, we also pray for your presence and for uh, that you be made manifest uh, in him and, and through him and to him, through his family members, and we just ask that uh, you were there and that you are a, a calming and a a healing uh, a presence and ask for your support for uh, Brian, Sonia, and girls and everybody who is helping him through uh, his sickness. We pray for Dave, Mike's dad, and just ask that his uh, health issues are also resolved quickly and easily, that the meeting with the doctor is productive and that uh, he's able to uh, feel better and uh, be put into the shape that you intended him to be. We pray for Dan as he goes to the heart doctor. We just ask that there is a, a easy, minimally invasive solution, and we just ask that you be with him and, and sustain him. And we thank you for um, you know the Barker's role in our conversation or congregation and all the things that they do for all of us. And just ask that uh, we can be a support to them, and that yeah, of course, that you can be made present in and manifest in, in all those circumstances. We lift all these things up, Lord God, and pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.